This is the Kestrel Country Podcast, where we discuss the people, places, and events all around Kestrel Country. I'm your host, Mike Church, joined um, this week by Eric Ingerbretson. Very excited to have Eric in the studio. Uh, we were able to talk all about uh, music and his journey as being a musician, a professional musician here in Moscow, Idaho. Um, growing up here, going away for a while and coming back. Lots of fun stories, um, but you'll want to go check out his music. So to find Eric's music and listen to it a little bit, maybe even before you get into the podcast, would be looking for him as Eric Ingerbretson as well as Eric-E as an artist. Um, he's got a couple of different things out there, different albums. Um, so search both Eric Ingerbretson and Eric Dash E on Spotify, iTunes, um, all the different places out there to hear some of his music. And also you can check him out at Eric Dash E dot com. Um, so yeah, I want to get into this discussion with Eric Ingerbretson about music and Moscow Idaho. Well, Eric E, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, thanks for, for coming, coming thanks in. Thanks for being interested in me joining you. Yeah. I appreciate it. So you go by Eric E. Yeah, for obvious reasons. It's funny. I was just telling a guy this story uh, just an hour ago on the phone. I was telling this guy this funny story about my last name. My last name's Engerbretson, 11 letters, totally fanatic, but yeah, most, most people, they, basic. It, it, you would think, but there's not many that people that can still read properly in these days. And, uh, and p- people, uh, they see 11 letters and they panic and they start sweating. And, and, uh, yeah, when I first started my music career, basically 1979, um, I was Eric Engerbretson and everybody, uh, nobody could remember me. They'd be like, well, it was some Eric, Eng- Eric, some Eric guy played and he was great. You should go. And guys on big, on a stage would announce and they'd say, ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Idaho, Eric, Eng- Eric, Eric, you know, and, and I just got so I was getting really fed up with the problems that my name was presenting, and uh, my dad was such a hilarious. He was hilarious, and he he said this was right when Bruce Springsteen was huge. Okay, and my dad goes, Eric, you should think about maybe getting a stage name. And I was like, Well, yeah, I guess I yeah. And he goes, How about Bruce Engerbretson? <laughs> 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 I was like, oh man, yeah. So yeah, I just at some point in the um, yeah through about half of my career, I just lived with it, suffered with the eleven letters, and then I uh, about halfway through, I just started going by Eric E, and it made everything better. So, yeah, even the bank now when I go when I get checks, people just write checks to Eric E, and the bank doesn't even care; they just cash them. There you go. <laughs> They're so used to it. Perfect. So how did you said? Um, so how long have you been doing music? Well, that's depends on if you mean professionally or doing music. I mean, I when I was 10 years old, I played the guitar in a what they used to call a cantata. The Lutheran church calls them a cantata, just basically a like a musical yeah, concert with me, kind of medleys and things. I played guitar in in my Lutheran church. Actually, that was here in Moscow. Emmanuel Lutheran, the one that okay. looked, the yeah. one that looks like a big chocolate chip. Um I uh Played guitar in church starting at age 10. And then, uh, 
So you grew um, up here in Moscow? Yeah, from fifth grade on, fifth okay. grade to 12th grade, I should say. And then I, I left in 1980. But but uh, yeah, so I played a little guitar, but the first time I ever played outside of church was uh, a party when I was 16 years old where my future wife was at, and I was incredibly nervous playing the guitar in front of her and in front of other people outside of my bedroom or the church, you know. And um, uh, then, but my first paying gig, I was, it was 1979. I played, I played out at the Elks Club for a dinner party at the Moscow Elks Club. Oh, wow. 1979. So I've been, yeah, I've been getting paid to do it ever since 1979. And 1985, when I got out of college, um, there's one I just went full time and that was my living from then. Wow. Yeah. Was that, was that, did you go to college here? Uh, no, I went, uh, I left high school, I graduated high school here. Then the next year I went to Bible college and the crazy thing, I got scouted to play football for the university, university of Idaho. And I was thinking, really? I was, yeah. And I was thinking I was going to be an, an architect. That was all I could think of doing. And I went to, uh, the, but the guy, the coach said I had to, uh, gain weight, gain quite a bit of weight. And I thought, wow, I'll just, and I got these offers to go to this Bible college and I was a new new Christian, and, and I well, I'd been going to church, but as far as really walking with the Lord and being fully committed, I was a pretty new Christian, age seventeen, and I um, uh, got these offers to go to this Lutheran Bible College in in Seattle, and I I thought, well, that's great. I'll go Bible college for a year and do nothing but pump iron the whole time. Come back, play football for the University of Idaho, study architecture, and then I got to uh, the college, and it was funny. Uh, well, actually, I better not. I better not say this uh, <laughs> this detail as far as I, I had people that that uh, thought that uh, when you go to this Bible college for a year, yeah, I can't. I should not. I should not say this because it could make it could make some people look bad. But anyway, let's just say it was a great Bible college, and uh, it, just I I got so turned on to following Jesus in that first year. Mm. Uh, it was wonderful, and I got in right away with a Christian rock band playing pr- really pretty hard rock, almost metal. And when I saw, we would go around and, and do these performances for for youth groups. And um, when I saw the effect that music could have to communicate the gospel and to help people, I thought, man, doing what I love, music, and being able to help people with it and communicate, do, do ministry, it, it just blew me away. So mm-hmm. I stayed at Bible college for two years. That was in Issaquah on the oh, yeah. east side of Seattle. Had a great two years that changed my life, gave me friends that I still have to this day, my best friends. And um, and so then I decided, um, I kind of thought, well, the only things you can do with music, I was very naive, and I thought that there were only two options. You either had to be the next absolute rock star or you had to be a high school band teacher. And I just didn't think there was anything in the middle. I thought it's one or the other. You either get hugely famous, which is like playing a roulette wheel, or you end up teaching kids. And I just didn't want to do that. And I was kind of stuck. And so I I, uh, I thought, well, I'll go, I'll study music and be a sound engineer. I'll be a mixing, you know, oh, sound engineer yeah. and and recording a recording engineer because I'd like to I could record people that way. I don't have to be a rock star and I don't have to teach kids. But you still are in the industry. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went off to a uh, music program at Green River Community College in Auburn, south of Seattle. Okay. 
and they had a professional entertainment training program. And, and just pretty quick, I just realized like, man, I can't do anything but play guitar. All I want to do is play guitar. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just sort of, uh, one of those things where you, some people tell you don't try to become a musician unless you can't do anything else. Unless you, you not, you, not like you have to be you, fully committed. Yeah. You just can't like, like if you can't imagine, like, could I imagine not eating for the next 20 years or, or, or something it's just when it's that much a part of your being, that's when you're going to be, be able to be successful one way or the other. So that's kind of what just happened to me. And so I got, uh, got into college at the community college and that program was going so well that I went two years there. And then I got into a jazz, uh, one of the most famous college jazz choirs in the country up mm. at Edmonds community college in okay. on the other on the other end of Seattle. So I basically, I went five years to college, um, nothing but a two year Bible degree. Cause I realized, um, what happened there was I was going to, I thought out of Bible college, I thought, Oh, now I'll just go get a bachelor's degree in music. And then when I realized how much I was having to take physics and math and stuff to get that bachelor's degree. Mm. And I'm horrendously bad at math. <laughs> Like this isn't worth oh it. Oh my gosh. Math and I have an <laughs> math and I have an agreement. I leave it alone, it leaves me alone. But we uh uh it was I was spending so much time trying to scramble just to pass those classes with stuff I was never gonna use that I finally realized, no, this I don't need a degree. All I want to do is perform music. I don't wanna um uh teach. So I don't need a degree. All I need is a demo tape for the rest of my life. And uh so I just bagged all the classes except music stuff, and it took three years of of music courses, and I and then I ended up being very glad that I did that. Um, so yeah, five years of college. Um, so and this the, jazz choir you mentioned that that was just singing. Yeah, just vocals. Yeah, that was kind of so a. So you love you you love playing the guitar, but singing is obviously yeah that was a passion a, too. Yeah, that was kind of a fluke. That's something that the Lord did. I don't. It was kind of a fluke because I. When I was at Bible college, I wanted to try to take some guitar lessons. I've still only had maybe eight guitar lessons in my whole life, but I bumped into this guy that was a jazz player, and he was young, uh, maybe a year younger than me, um, phenomenal jazz player at that age, kind of a wunderkind kind of guy. Blew me away, and I really had no idea about jazz. I didn't know anything about it. I was a hard rock guy, and I wanted to be a lead guitar player in a rock band. Was kind of That's what I wanted. And so then this guy turned me on to jazz and he was such a monster player and knew so much. That I thought, wow, there's something there. I, I maybe So I started studying with him and then he said, yeah, I'm, I go to Edmonds Community College and I'm in this, this jazz choir called Soundsation. And I thought, well, okay, what's that? And so I went to see one of the shows and absolutely blew my mind. It was like, do you know who, who Manhattan Transfer is? Yeah. Okay. Well, if you took Manhattan Transfer and put, put, four people on each part uh, so that you could do even more than four-part harmony. You could do five, six-part harmony. But if you had four altos, four sopranos, four tenors, and four basses, so a 16-person, but that kind of high-energy jazz vocals, uh, and then a horn section and a rhythm section, Mm. and all of that in a group. Um, And this college uh, had the – I saw that concert when I saw this guy – Dave Braun playing the guitar in that group. I was just blown away. Suddenly I became a jazz fan, got really into it. And um, I still thought I was going to be a guitarist. And then 
uh, coming out of my two years at that professional entertainment training program at, a, at Green River Community College, I'd heard, I heard that Soundstation was taking auditions, and I thought, well. So I auditioned for both guitar and voice, hmm. and um, they just didn't really need a guitarist, and they did need a, a vocalist. And uh, I don't, there was dozens, dozens of people that tried out for just two two tenor spots and I, I somehow I got it and I wasn't even, but I, these were people that had been singing in choirs all their life and could read music and I couldn't read with my voice. Actually, I couldn't read the guitar either, but because uh, of the entertainment training program was more professional, it was more uh, performance. So you're more, mostly just self-taught. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I took, I did study theory in college, but on the guitar. Yeah. Hmm. And, um, so anyway, I made it in that group, and it was, again, just life-changing uh, thing for my music career. It was pretty comical because, again, I had never been in a choir. And um, this group, I thought what you did at choir practice was you went to choir practice to learn the songs, to learn the music, right? That made sense to me. And so they gave me this guy, Frank DeMiro, the one of the leading jazz educators in the country, um, they gave me a book when I passed the audition in like May and the book was one of those three, three inch binders yeah, full of tunes. And I, and I opened them, opened it up and it was like Egyptian hieroglyphics to me. I'm like, and it was very, very complex because jazz is so syncopated that when it's written out, uh, it's way more complex than classical music as far as because of the syncopation, all the eighth and 30 second rests and you know, classical tends to be on the beat more with only very small syncopations. Anyway, the, this book, and I looked at it and I was like, Oh my gosh. And I just went into full procrastination mode for the summer. And he said, yeah, just, you know, learn, learn these tunes and, and be ready in, in, in uh, August when we get together. And I was like, what I, have I gotten myself Yeah, into? I had no idea. And I just put it, I was so far out. It was like somebody, if somebody said, here, design a nuclear weapon by September. And I, I'd be like, oh, I just can't quite do that. And so I ignored it. And then first day of school came at college and I went to this choir and I come in the room and I'm expecting, okay, now we'll open the book and the director will start teaching us these tunes one by one. And... um that's what I thought was going to happen. It was one of the worst days of my life as far as just being t completely decimated. Um, and I walk in there and I'm already nervous. There's these 16 singers. Most of these people had been in the group the year before. Okay. So the singers, these were singers that had sung in high school jazz choirs and were the star students. And then they made it into this jazz group and they'd already been in it for a year and before. <laughs> and this was a group that made records, you know, and went on national tours and stuff. And, Here's me, never been in a choir in my life, can't read, and but it passed the audition because I guess I had a voice. I don't know, and uh, and they must have been pretty hard up. But I walk in there the first day, and there's these sixteen singers. Everybody's on their own mic, and then there's the horns and the thing. And this guy Frank walks up and opens the book, and he goes, "So you guys feeling pretty up to speed?" And everybody's like, "Yeah, yeah." And I'm going <laughs> up to speed, and he and he goes, "Okay," and he names off the name of a tune. And we flip through, flip through, and I find it, and I, there's the chart, and then you got to flip like ten pages to get through the song, and of course all the hieroglyphics are there, and and then uh, I'm thinking, okay, now Frank's gonna say, okay, here's here's the tenor part, here's the, yeah, here's the tenor part, here's how it goes on the piano, <clears throat> and Frank walks up, and he, we open to the page, and he goes, and he goes, one, two, 
and the horns, and the and the singer just he starts singing, and I'm like standing with my jaw on the floor and going, "Oh my gosh, I'm supposed to know these songs, you know." <laughs> it was oh man, how did you survive? I, it how was did you make it? it was pretty. Frank uh, wisely figured it out pretty quickly that I was. Uh, uh, needed some catching up. So he helped. He That's had, awesome. he had mercy on me and got me up to speed. Eventually I, I made it. And the tenors, the other tenor dudes all, all helped me. And it, I was like the, the pet there for a little while that they were trying to get up to speed. But man, that group, geez, sometimes Frank would go, he'd have us learn a tune and then he'd go up in the, in the studio. There was a big mixing board, like a 32 channel mixing board. He'd go up there. He'd have us sing the song. And while we're doing it, He'd go up and he'd have headphones on. He'd be putting on one person's mic at a time. Mm. 16 singers singing, and he'd be listening to one of us. We didn't know which one to see how well we knew our part. And these were extremely complicated, you know, mm. uh, lyrics and, and notes, you know. Like one of them would be like, uh, isn't it weird to stay the way musicians start to show you how fast they learn to play the music? Is it that they want to make it seem so tough? So very tough. You know, incredibly fast lyrics and mm. and. That had to have been an awesome experience. Oof, so. Yeah, I, it, it took my musicianship to just a whole other level. It was amazing. So that was a fantastic year. And then we got to go. We got to be the first, the two biggest jazz festivals in the world, basically, are the Montreux Jazz Festival in Geneva, Switzerland, and the North Sea Festival in, uh, in Den Haag in the Netherlands. And we got invited to go. We were the first college uh first college group to ever play at those festivals. Wow. And that was pretty cool. So we get to go on a tour. Was and that kind of your first experience touring, doing travel and music together and that kind of thing? Um, let's see. Yeah, on a touring aspect, yes. Because uh, the, I had been in a group, the, the rock group that I was in in college, we ended up going for, in Bible college, that group went for three years. Oh, wow. And um, uh, so we would go out. We did a lot of traveling to gigs and driving across the state of Washington and things like that, but only one at a time. So it wasn't really touring. Oh, geez, I forgot about the 1983. That's another fun story. When I was, a, and that was, I did have experience touring. I forgot before I went to Europe. Um, that was a funny story. I went to, uh, oh, and I should, before I start telling stories, I should, find out how much time we have here. And are you, do you want me to just ramble on stories like yeah. this? We got, well, it's, it's totally flexible. Oh, we got however much, our only time constraint. I mean, at some point I'm going to have to have lunch. Right. But yeah, no, we're, but, yeah, we're, it's, it's totally flexible. Okay. So, yeah. So the main, the main issue is just me being boring. So if I, give me this symbol, if, if, I, if, if it's I getting boring, nod. yes, I'll, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, a funny thing happened when I was at Bible college, I was in that rock band and there was a guy named Robert Case, and he had a band called the Robert Case Band. They came, it was a Christian rock band, and he was an older guy, really experienced, great songwriter, all original music. Um, well, our, our band was all originals too, but uh, this guy was kind of a rock star, kind of a Christian rock star from Seattle. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, nationally known, he toured all over, and and um, but he was from Seattle. He came and played at our Bible college, blew my mind, loved it. It was just great Christian rock, right? You know, 1981, kind of more in the beginning of the rock. Uh, well, not beginning, but early Christian rock. And it was really good. 
And so I thought of him as a rock star. Well, I, I did my two years um, in Bible college. And then right the summer of 1983, when I was going to go to Green River, I was you know, going to be working all summer and wondering, you know, what I was going to do. And uh, the phone rings and there's this guy, Eric. And I go, yeah, and he goes, hi, this is Robert Case. And I'm like, to me at that time, it was the same thing as if Eddie Van Halen called me, you know, hey, is this Eric, you know? And uh, I was like, oh my gosh. And I said, yeah, that's me. And, and I, I said, I love your band, man. I heard you and I got your record and stuff. And, and, uh, and he says, well, hey, we heard that you, you're a pretty good bass player. And I went, okay, that's weird. I played one, there's one song in my band. My band was called the Living Stones, you know, from the Bible verse. And uh, we had all original songs. I was the lead singer and and the guitarist, one of the yeah. one of the two guitarists. I played guitar on every single song, but there was one song we did where Ross, the bass player, wanted to play guitar. So I played the bass on one song. It was all I'd ever done on the bass. And apparently somebody heard me doing that song at a show. They walked in, saw it. I was the bass player, and they told Robert. And so Robert's on the phone and, he's, like, uh, and he says, he says, yeah, we hear you're a pretty good bass player. And, and, uh, I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he, and, uh, so he says, well, I'm going on, a, we're going on a summer tour. We're going to, uh, I've got a bus and we're going to tour from Seattle to LA to Miami, um, for two and a half months and, uh, starting in June. And we're just wondering if you might want to play bass with my band, if you'd like to audition. And, I was, and we've got guys auditioning, but I was wondering if you'd want to audition. I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't even have a bass. And, and I said, I gotta and, get a bass first. Yeah. And so he said, so he says, okay, so I'm gonna, uh, I'll mail you a cassette with five tunes on it. You learn those five tunes, come and audition in two weeks and we'll be, uh, we'll see what happens. And so I, I hang up the phone. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to get a bass and, a, and, and a bass amp. And so, the, the, you know, this cassette comes and I get a bass and I'm just, you know, scrambling to learn how to play these five songs. And I got them nailed, you know, I went and did the audition. And he goes, yeah, you want to go on tour with us? And I was like, yeah. So I got to tour for two and a half months. Um, man, we played churches, uh, mainly churches, but for, like I said, from Seattle to LA and all the way to, to Miami. And then we stayed, we did two weeks in little Haiti mm. and, uh, do an outreach to these just really, really some of the poorest people in the USA. And I mean, we literally were playing in the parking lot of, of a whorehouse one time and, and meeting these girls and telling them about Jesus. And it was, it was amazing. Mm. There was a whole week where I don't think I saw, I don't think I saw another white person than the band members for a week and a half. Mm. Cause we were just right there and stay, staying there in the bus. And, and, uh, it was just so cool to be just immersed in a, such a strange thing for me as a boy from Idaho and just meeting all these great people and these really interesting people and, and learning that these people with extremely hard lives and extremely hard backgrounds, that they were just, you know, great people in so many ways. And they just were disadvantaged and dealt a, a hard deck of cards, you know? Um, so that was a life-changing thing, yeah. But then, so then, yeah, when I got to go tour Europe with the, uh, with Soundsation, the jazz group, I guess that's right. It wasn't my first time touring, but, yeah. but yeah, but that was a major pivotal event too, because I had done five years of college 
at that point. And I was kind of done with college and the jazz group was going to be done. I didn't think I wanted to do a whole nother year because it was, uh, it was 10 college credits. I think we did four hours a day. Wow. That sensation group. That's what it took to make that group happen Hmm. was four hours of class every day. And, um, um, wasn't sure I wanted to do another year of that. I was like, what am I going to do? And then I found out my friend, Kurt, my best buddy from Bible college, the guy that had really inspired me on the acoustic guitar. Cause he, he would, he was an acoustic guitar singer, songwriter. He was kind of like the, uh, just a musical inspirational leader. Cause he was 10 years older than me and the other students at our Bible college. Every time there was a campfire or an event or something, Kurt would get out his guitar, sing his songs and sing worship songs. And he would lead us in worship all the time. And uh, it was so, some of the most intimate, when I thought of my intimacy with God and when people say, you know, uh, loving God, loving Christ uh, in, a, in an emotional way as well as an intellectual way, my so much of that, me being drawn into that love so that when my, the intellectual part of my faith was weak, the emotional part was strong and it would tide me over until then there would come the time when my emotions were feeling weak, then my intellect would, would help me. That's like, a, it's like this two part tightrope walk of mm-hmm. faith. I think you got to have both. And some people just have one or the other. You know, they're all intellect, but, and they, they've got the, they've read all the books about all the apologetics and everything else, but they just don't, they're not in love with Jesus. And so the times when the devil makes them feel like they need emotion or they need um, that kind of spiritual walk, there's nothing there on that side. And then there's the people that are all emotional walk and they don't have any apologetics and then all the devil has to do is just have to say you know what about the dinosaurs or something <laughs> and and then, and then these people's yeah. faith is rocked you know uh so you got to have both and but that emotional the side of t- drawing me into the love of god was <laughs> so much due to this guy kurt keck and his guitar at my bible college and his acoustic guitar and his inspiration is just a, a solo guy singing and playing and uh, I didn't realize how much that had inspired me. So I'm finishing up. I'm realizing I'm going on this tour with Soundstation to Europe. It's going to be a two-week tour and a free plane trip to Europe. And at that point, Kurt had been in Sweden for a year. He chased a Swedish girl from Bible college <laughs> over to Sweden. <laughs> and uh turned out that never worked out. But he ended up in Sweden doing a solo acoustic guitar ministry concert ministry all over Sweden. And he was really getting well-known as the American guy running around Sweden with a guitar and playing confirmation classes and youth groups of all sorts. And then Christ- and then music festivals as well. And he was pretty established. And I knew he was there in the south of Sweden. And I I was going to quit Soundsation. So the, the minute that two-week tour in Europe was over, the minute we flew back to the States, I was done with college and done with that jazz group. And so I thought, I've got a free plane trip to Europe. When's that ever going to happen? When am I ever going to get to go to Europe again? Because I thought it was impossible because of money. Um, I thought so. I just packed a, a bag, like an army duffel bag, and and I I said, "See you guys 
at the end of that two week tour, I didn't fly home. And <laughs> so you're just there in Europe. I was just there in Europe <laughs> with a plane ticket that I didn't use half of. So it was just gone. And I hitchhiked up to uh, Sweden, uh, went to London for a little bit. And then I hitchhiked up to Sweden and, and Kurt, I had asked Kurt if I could come stay with him for a while. And so uh, I ended up in the South of Sweden, staying with this guy, Kurt Keck. And he had a schedule concert schedule booked and PA system of his own. And, and, and so I ended up being an acoustic lead guitar player. So Kurt and I, we were kind of like Simon and Garfunkel for the Christian, for the confirmation classes of the state church all over the South of Sweden Mm. for, uh, for another year after that, I uh, toured with Kurt. And so I learned just by proxy, he showed me what it's like to take an acoustic guitar by yourself and inspire a group of people over two hours. Sing about your faith, songs that you wrote, wrote about what matters to you, how you see the world, be, a, be an entertainer as well as uh, a minister, as well as a songwriter. And uh, so I kind of learned the rope, ropes from Kurt. And then after a year, I had to leave Sweden because my visa ran out. And um, I, actually, I actually got arrested in Sweden for vagrancy. <laughs> But you made it out. I made it out. Oh man, it was that was kind of sketchy. That's a funny story. What I I, I played on the street. You know, I hadn't had no money. So, uh, and Kurt, you know, was we just make enough from the donations at his shows to just keep to basically survive. And I and then Kurt. Um, well, anyway, there were times when I would play on the street quite a bit, and there was this one place in Sweden, this kind of outdoor mall that I would play at, and. Uh, even there was even a couple of cops that would stand and listen to me and people dug the music and they'd give me money. And one time uh, it rained for like four days straight and I couldn't play at that spot. So I had no money. And uh, I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something. And so I realized that I remembered that some of the street musicians I had seen in other places made a cardboard sign that said, um, thanks for helping me to eat. And I thought, oh, I'll do that. And people feel sorry and they give me more money, right? Give you money. I got to make a lot of money here because I've spent raining for four days. So I made one of those signs, put it up. And here comes the same two cops that li- like to listen to me. And they just come walking up to me right in the middle of a song. I didn't even wait till I was done with the song. They just come walking up, stand right in front of me and go, you're going to have to come with us. <laughs> and I stopped singing and I'm like, um, what do you mean? And, and they said, well, you're going to have to come with us. And I said, well, why? And they said, we're not going to tell you that. And I said, am I under arrest? And they said, yep. And, and I said, well, then you have to tell me why. Uh, you uh, In America, they have to tell you why they're arresting you. And he goes, and he said, this isn't America. <laughs> you think? Oh. Yeah, yeah. So they took me to the Swedish police station, the Swedish jail, and they said, uh, and they said, how much money do you have? And, and I said, um, what you saw in my guitar case there. And, and they said, because your visa, you have to, Legally, you have to have enough money to leave the country when your visa runs out. And uh, I said, oh, and, and, and they said, so unless you have a sponsor, someone in Sweden here who's your official sponsor and taking care of you financially, then you stay in jail tonight or, and maybe another day. And then we put you on a ship to New York City. And when you get to New York, you owe the passage fee. And I was like, oh, and they said, so we'll let you make a phone call. And so, so, I called, so I called Kurt and I said, Kurt, um, I'm here with these wonderful policemen. And they 
they need to they need to know that you're my sponsor financially and <laughs> I'm kind of trying to wink over the telephone, you know. And uh and so Kurt gets on and he goes, Oh yeah, I've got Eric totally covered. Yeah, we're taking care of him. So Kurt was my told the cops I was my sponsor. So that allowed me to not get shipped to New York. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's but that's crazy. Yeah. So how, how did you end up back in Moscow? Oh, man. you said was it 1985? Yeah, that was yeah that was two years. So I basically then after I got out of ho- Sweden, Kurt said I know this guy in Holland that books Youth for Christ coffee houses all over the Netherlands, and so he called that guy. So I went down there, and I then I had an incredible year and a half or so of doing um, those coffee houses, and I went into public schools, and I got to do evangelism concerts in public schools, mm-hmm. and then do classrooms where I did apologetics for the whole, the whole time. It was amazing. And um I just have to reset our camera here real quick. That's our only I get a finite amount of time. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I got oh, carried sorry. away. No, no, no. It's good. Yeah. But I um so I spent about two and a half years there and then uh just was I had lost when I went over there I weighed 185 pounds. When I came back after two and a half years, I weighed 150 pounds. So you're not playing football at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, you know, I'd been, I'd have these sections of time where I was living on the street. I literally, I lived in a cardboard box in Paris for almost two weeks and, and I hitchhiked all over the place and around Europe. And so I was basically just completely worn out after two, two and a half years. I lived about eight years worth of experience mm. in two and a half years. And, and, uh, I mean, I lived with a heroin addict for a while. I lived with the, the people I'd meet on the street playing, um, I, everything from this heroin addict that I lived with for a little while to the U.S. ambassador to Denmark. I stayed at his house for a week, for two weeks, and he got to be a friend. And everybody in between, you know, because you mm. play on the street and people start chatting with you. And where are you staying tonight? I don't know. Well, come sleep on my couch or whatever, you know. And um, so I was tuckered out. So I went to... I wanted to go around the world instead of just going straight back home. So I stayed in Stockholm, played on the street for Stockholm. I think it took about six weeks. I made enough to fly to Tokyo because I had a friend in north of Japan. So I flew to Tokyo, got to Tokyo with $6 to my name, hitchhiked eight hours north to Sendai, Japan, stayed with that friend for two months, took me two months of playing on the street to make enough money to fly to Seattle. And I flew, flew to Seattle hitchhiked from Seattle to Moscow and then lived with my dad and my mom and dad for a while. And that's what got me back to Moscow. Mm. And they were here that whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and I could have at any time, I could have called my dad and said, Hey dad, you know, I got to get home. I'm I'm worn out. Can you bail me out with your visa card? And he would have, and then I'd have heard about it for the rest of my life. (laughs) You know? So I said, Nope, not going there. So, uh, I made it home. And then, uh, that's when I, uh, kind of, I had known Sylvia, my wife, I'd known her since seventh grade, seventh grade band, uh, and had, had a major crush on her from like 11th grade on. And, uh, then I, uh, came back to Moscow after that two and a half years. I tried to date her when I was a kid, but I'm a year younger than her. I was a year younger than everybody in my high school class. I was 16 years old from for half of my senior year, actually most of my senior year. So I was just too young. I tried to date her and 
a couple times and I was just, I was just an idiot kid and she was very mature. And so it didn't work. But after two and a half years of traveling the world and then I was a little more mature. So then she and I got together and, and, uh, I asked her to marry me and two weeks later we got married. Would have been one week, but my mom had a garage sale that she couldn't put <laughs> off. So literally. And, uh, so then we got married, and then of course we went back over to Europe for a couple of years to keep doing the, the classroom ministry thing that I was doing over there in high school classes. Okay. That was so valuable that we went over there, and we ended up in Denmark um, doing with Youth for Christ Denmark doing that classroom outreach ministry for two years in Denmark. Yeah, and uh, so basically between five and six years of being in Europe, and then we got. Uh, Got pregnant with our first baby when we were in Denmark, and at eight months, we moved back. We didn't want to raise kids in Denmark for a whole bunch of reasons, but um, uh, yeah, and we ended up living in Spokane, and that was another big career change thing. I don't know if you, you know, if you want to ask me any more questions, or if you want me to just kind of keep rambling. I'm yeah, like, no. So, so music though. Pretty much this whole time. I mean, did you do much else no, ever? nothing. Than music? Not until I got to Moscow, and that was a, another... 2001, I came uh, from Spokane back to Moscow. Okay. Because Jim Wilson asked me to, to if I want, might want to manage the Community Christian Ministries bookstore that was yeah. down here. And I thought, oh, that's something I could do. Because at that point, my goal was to get, kid, get my kids, either get my kids in a... Uh, well, I wanted to get my kids into Logos. And so to get me here to Moscow, managing a Christian outreach ministry, if I could, and that was only going to be half time or at least half time pay. Uh, and I, I could still perform. I could still travel and play music uh, as well. So that seemed like a perfect thing. So that's. Now that time in Spokane before that, before 2001, was that um, primarily travel? Were you traveling all over the place yeah. doing music and, and solo? Well, that was a, the, that was also, that was just another weird thing because I got, um, I had spent six years paying dues on the music scene in Europe and it's very small. People don't realize Denmark is four and a half million people. So it's half the size of Chicago, the entire country. So, and I played every corner, every town in Denmark because I was going around doing these college and high school concerts. So all these young people knew me all over Denmark, and then the same exact situation in Holland. Mm. And so in those two countries, and I went, I was playing the top music festivals, the couple of the biggest, Obstand in Denmark is about seven or 8,000 people. Um, Flavo Festival in Holland, I played there on the big stage, and that was uh, um, like 10,000 people. And so I was playing the biggest stage, I, you know, playing, open for like DC Talk and, and uh, a lot of the big names, Larry Norman, um, a whole bunch of the big names and biggest, Finland's biggest festival. That was the biggest festival I ever did. Um, that was about 12,000 people in Finland's biggest hockey stadium in Helsinki mm. uh, for a Christian festival. And um, so I spent six years paying all those dues, getting really known. And I was finally was doing, and I had a German record company that wanted to sign me. And, and um, I, I, was finally poised to be able to really make records and do do Christian original music 
and be an artist. And then we decided we can't, I don't want to raise my kid over here. And uh, I won't go into all the reasons, but it was pretty, uh, yeah, I don't know how much to say in that regard. Just it was a, a clear an decision. Extreme, yeah, a very clear decision that um, parents, kids over there, the mindset was the government raises your kids to a large degree and you stay hands off and you don't tell your kid, don't ever say no to your kid because that'll inhibit his, his personality. And, you know, so that we just saw a lot of really horrible things and, you know, very small children into pornography and pornography readily available for them anywhere in any time. And uh, a lot of teen alcoholism and just a lot of hmm. issues that we just didn't want our kids there. And, yeah. and I had just finished, well, God, there's so many stories. This is crazy. Um, anyway, what happened was I made a record with a Christian um, record label in Spokane when I was home for Christmas one time. Uh, that was my Taste and See album. That ended up basically being my bestseller. And, and um, I sold about 30,000 um, just at shows in Europe. But I recorded it in Spokane. And this Christian label in a killer recording studio, uh, he wanted to sign me. So I'm over in Denmark doing music ministry. And he and I, when we decided we wanted to come home, he said, man, I want to sign you as an artist and you can come and live in Spokane. We'll book you. We'll have a, a booking guy to book all your live shows. And then you can produce other artists out of our studio, produce records as well. And I thought, oh, sheesh, that sounds incredible. That's what I want to do. Yeah, that's what I want to do straight from the Lord. Here's this great Christian guy in the great Christian studio. And and uh, so I, I did. I, I signed a deal with him and that was what was going to happen. And then the, the few months before we were going back to the States, I'd call and check with this guy and, oh yeah, our booking guy has you booked up for three months in advance and it's going fantastic. We can't wait for you to get here, blah, blah, blah. So we're eight months pregnant, almost to the point where we weren't supposed to fly and we're penniless because we just finished this ministry where we, we'd been given nothing but housing and board. I mean, room and board. And uh, so completely penniless, but I'm going back. I got three months of gigs booked in advance, all set, going to Spokane. So we literally, the day we get to Spokane, we find out this guy had been lying. Mm. His his Christian record company and studio was was doing Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and he never had had a single, he didn't have a booking agent guy, and he never booked a single show for me at all. So we land in Spokane, eight months pregnant, penniless, and no job. And no gigs. And I thought, well, I'll just go around to the bars and the music venues in Spokane and find places to play. And I'd go and they'd be, oh, yeah, we like your resume. We'd love to have you play. But we're booked for three, four months mm. in advance. Yeah. And so they, I couldn't even play any club, any music. Mm. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So rather than just go out and get a regular job, I, I, which I couldn't imagine, I just thought, so I went around to restaurants. I looked at all the biggest restaurants in town and all the places. And I, I tried to think of these places that these guys should have live music. And then I'd go in there and I'd say, you know, would you, would you guys like to try live music? And like, no, we've never done that. That wouldn't work. And I said, ah, it would work. I could get people to stay longer, buy more drinks, buy more food. And uh, just let me try one night for free. See what you think. So these, I'd go mm. and I'd set up in a corner 
I play. And That's the hustle. Right yeah, there. Oh man, yeah, and it worked, and it was incredible. So right off the bat, and I was playing, but I was playing six nights a week for set four hours, singing for four hours, wow. six days a week for seventy five bucks a night, and uh, pretty quick. I I I did um, when I looked at my calendar, looked back one time. I did 250 performances a year for 17 years straight. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of singing. Unbelievable. Yeah. So basically. Like you said, you got to be dedicated. You got to have no other option, right? Yeah, not, yeah. Not, it's not be able to do anything else. Sink or swim. That's kind of been my whole life. I've jumped in, I always jump in the deep end before I can swim, and you just, I better learn how to swim because I'm in the 12 feet of water here. And and that's just been my life. And uh, I mean, from Soundsation to, well, the, the Christian rock band, everything. That's just the way I did things, and and and. Um, so then you ended up twenty. What was that? Twenty two years ago or something? Coming yeah. back into Moscow. Yeah, that was that was nineteen. Yeah, nineteen. We got married in eighty eight. Went back to Europe until ninety one. Ninety one, we moved to Spokane. Then I started scrambling, just being a bar musician, just playing in bars to survive, bars and restaurants, and slowly. And then I met an agent after a couple of years, who said, "Man, you need to be on the college market." I was like, okay. So he starts booking me at college market. Started, you know, I just started learning more and more about the music business. Um, he got me into bigger shows, better money, more traveling around the Northwest, and then took the college market thing nationwide in the nineties. Uh, I recorded a, I got signed by a Christian record label in, in Los Angeles, and um, I recorded an album there. Phil Keggy played on it with me. Uh, John Patitucci. Uh, one of the best bass players in the world, a jazz bassist. Um, it was like playing on my simple rock music was with him. I tell people it was like taking a Ferrari, buying a Ferrari or renting a Ferrari just to go to the grocery store for a trip. That's what it was like. Cause this guy was just a monster player, John Patitucci. Um, and, uh, and of course, Phil K was one of my idols. So that was cool. But I did this record and it was, and that was another thing where God just, you know, the things, you know, my pastor always says, God loves a cliffhanger. And I've just seen that time and time again throughout my career is God makes these things that seem like disasters. You swear it was a disaster. And then he shows you, oh, this is why I did that. This is why that happened so that this other thing could happen that couldn't happen otherwise kind of thing. My whole career was like that. So this, I, I did this record in LA, went really well with Phil Keggy's ring name recognition and it helped, and the um, the record company hires somebody who's called a tracking agent, and that person's job, they're like an industry guru that um, their job is to get you played on the radio because that's what mattered back then. And uh, this was before streaming on the internet. And um, uh, so they hired this lady in Nashville and there was only 30 reporting radio stations, which means only for the Christian charts, there was only 30 stations in the nation that reported to the Christian charts. So all you had to do was get strong airplay on 30 stations and you were a hit Christian rock star. And um, so this lady, <coughs> she would call the program managers of all those stations and say, here's these three guys I want you to play this week. Uh, or this, you know, get this guy in your regular rotation, this one song, his first release. And they go, oh, it's Jackie from Nashville. Okay, yep, we'll play it. So um, 
they had her hired and they were paying her two grand a month to do that. Released my first single. It was starting to get airplay um, in uh, the Bible Belt, the first single. And he's like, and Peter was the record company president, was stoked. And he said, uh, Oh, yeah, this is great. And then the next one, we'll release the second one. It's going to go bigger. And so I was just about going to make it onto the charts. And my record was in every single, my well, CD. We call them, we call any recording, any recording, cassette, CD, DAT, MP3. Musicians call it a record. It's a record. Because record. Yeah. record is short for recording. It's a recording. And um, so... My record was in every Christian bookstore in America, but people weren't buying it yet because it hadn't had enough airplay. So they just didn't know what it was, even though it was in all the stores. But then it starts selling when I got that that first song getting played. So Peter had 30,000 units, CDs, in a distribution company in Asheville in their warehouse. Peter calls them up and says, hey, we need those 30,000 CDs because we've got to get them out. And uh, they're, they're selling. And this big distribution company, one of the biggest in the country, says, oh, well, we don't have them. And Peter says, what do you mean you don't have them? You're storing them in your warehouse for us, and that, we have a contract here that says that. And, and uh, he said, yeah, but they're not there. We can't find them. Peter says, oh, okay, well, send us a check. Send us a check for 30,000 units. And he said, well, we can't do that. We're not sending any money because we, we didn't sell them. And he says, yeah, but you, you got them. And they're like, yeah, but we don't have them. <laughs> Basically, so Peter's saying, well, one or the other, you got to give me the CDs or the money. And they said, sue us. Because they knew that what Peter would have to pay a lawyer to sue them, somebody that big, they knew it cost more than the 30,000 units of work. So they just said, sue us. Go ahead. And this was a Christian distribution company. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Peter had no choice but to fire Jackie, the tracking agent, my A and R artist and repertoire, my manager, the stuff, all the all the stuff that was pushing my album and getting get it on the charts, um, dropped it, and so my record just died on the mind. Mm. That, that was it. Boom! Nobody heard of it, and uh, and I'm just like, wow. And Peter says, "Welcome to the music business, Crazy. even the Christian music business." And uh, so the record company even shut down; had to shut down because he invested everything. That was a $30,000 album, which that's what he put into it, 30 grand. It cost me nothing, but he put that kind of investment in and got, you know, almost nothing back. Wow. And and 30,000 for a secular record, that's nothing. But for a Christian record, that was a pretty good investment, you know. And uh for a first-time artist by a small company. Yeah. Um and so you know, I'm just sitting there going, "Wow, God, God, uh, why did you Go and do that. And what I didn't know at the time, so what what ended up happening is then I went went more into the college market, became more of an entertainer than a songwriter. Um, And then came the time. uh, I still didn't fully know why God was doing what he was doing, but I was getting so successful on the college market and the corporate market nationwide that I was traveling all the time. I was gone five months of the year mm. each year. And then by then we had two kids and, you know, Ian and James and I, uh, I was traveling so much and it was getting to be more and more. And the more successful I got, the more I realized that you're just gone from home all the time, all the time. A musician's life is mainly rental cars, airplanes, and hotel rooms. Mm. 
That's where all your time is spent. Once in a blue moon, you get to go out and stand on the stage for a couple hours. The rest of your life is just a pain. It's rental cars, airplane hassles, and hotels. And you're sitting yeah. there. You're sitting there in hotel rooms by yourself. And and that kind of sucked. And I was realizing, Lord, is this really what you, you know, I, I want? I need to be with my kids. I need to be a dad. I need to be a good dad. I don't want to be singing "Cats in the Cradle" for real, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, oh, that one gets me every time. Oh, I know. It got <sighs> me too. One time I was singing that when Ian was only two weeks old. I think I was singing at a men's retreat up in the mountains. Sylvia decided to surprise me, come up and visit and bring bring little Ian. Um, and I was singing in front of about. 80 men in a room and somebody requested 1974. So I start playing cats in the cradle, which always, you know, touched and affected me because it was, I was realizing this is going to be my life probably. And Sylvia walks at the moment. I'm right in the middle of the song. Sylvia walks in the back door of the concert hall with Ian in her arms, two weeks old. And I'm singing that song. And I started crying. I broke down in front of the crowd. I was crying. And all the, all the dudes were like, Ooh, <laughs> it's like, and then we did a drum circle. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, pretty powerful. So, so you said anyway, something there, which I was going to, uh, you reminded me to bring this up. You said they, they shouted out a year. Mm-hmm. That's kind of your thing. At least, that's oh, yeah. what, at least around yeah. here, like that's what you become known for, right? Yeah. That became, how did that become your thing? Yeah. Isn't and, that funny? And maybe tell a little bit about that. So, okay. What, yeah. That, that uh, is a wild thing because to this day, I've still not seen anybody that does it anywhere. And I've been all over the world. I've not seen any entertainer do that. There's a lot of entertainers that'll say, pick a decade Hmm. and I'll play you a song from a decade. And there's piano bar guys that have a book and they can do literally every song ever. So they'll just say say a song, give me a song. Give a song and I'll play it. And they do it. And all the songs sound exactly the same. And it's the same guy and the same piano, but, but um, they can do it. Right. There's a lot of different things with guys with huge repertoires, but no, I've never heard anybody do the pick a year. So what happened was when I got to Europe and I started playing on the street for survival in Sweden. And then when I moved to Holland, the guy, the booking guy there, I had to prove myself to him before he would start putting me out with his big contacts. So I was gardening in wooden Dutch wooden shoes. I was doing gardening for a couple of weeks to survive in these he would pay, give, give me room and board if I gardened and, and I was wearing these Dutch clumping wooden shoes. And then I started going out to these little towns on their market days. Every town, town had a market day on a different day. I started playing on the street. And what would happen was um, people would, I'd be playing on the street. Somebody come up and go, do Chuck Berry, you know, do country roads, do. And, and I didn't know enough songs. I only had a handful of songs because I was mostly a songwriter and I had mostly had original songs. And so I would go home and I had all this time on my hands. I mean, literally, uh, yeah, I, I can't believe the amount of time I used to have on my hands being single and, and, uh, sitting in a room with nothing to do. And I would, uh, I be, and I'd get so many requests for Johnny B. Good. I, I better learn Johnny B. Good and better learn country roads. So I'd find records and, and, uh, learn it. You couldn't just get on the internet and find out, yeah. you know, and then I'd start, because I was just so passionate about music, I've I've always been a fan of history. And so I wanted to know. So I'd, I'd look up Johnny B. Good 
and find somebody that had the record somewhere, or I'd sit with a cassette recorder and I'd call the radio stations and say, please play Johnny Be Good. And then I'd wait for 45 minutes and then it would come on. I'd press the recorder, record it on a cassette. So I had a copy of it and, um, uh, without having to go buy the album cause I didn't have any money. And, uh, so then I'd go, so who is this guy, Chuck Berry, this song, what, what was the deal? When was that? And I just began to piece together, um, music history, pop music history. Uh, and I'd go, okay, now that was, so Chuck Berry was like from 1957 to 1960 was this big period. And he had this song in 1958 and I'd starting to research from album covers and different things, but there was no internet. And so you, you have to go to the library or, or I had a really hard time finding out, but I wanted to know about every song that I learned, who was the person that wrote it? Why, where were they? What was the, mm. you know, the stuff that now you can find out in seconds. Yeah. I had to really, really research to find it out. And then, so I just started realizing after a while, I started to get, you know, 50, 60, 70 songs. I'd play on the street and people would start to make requests and I could do them by name, by the name of the song. And then I started to realize as I was doing the research, I started writing down, okay, Chuck, Johnny Be Good, 1958, and then, uh, you know, sitting on the dock of the bay, 1968, and I started, and one day it just occurred to me, you know, I'd only have to fill in a few years, and I'd probably have a song for every dang year. And I, I thought, that'd be kind of fun. So it was just an exercise at first. I didn't even yeah. think, think of using it. And then I um, uh, eventually, I found out you could get from the Billboard, you know, the Billboard music charts, they had a book that was about two inches thick and it was what all the DJs used and you could order it and it was 50 bucks, which to me at that time, that was the same thing as like 500 bucks. Now I was like, well, I don't know, 50 bucks, but I got to do it. I just got to do it. So I figured out how to, somehow I did it. I ordered this book and then all you had to do is look up the song and it told you what year it was a hit. And so I said, okay, boom, I'm going to do it. And I learned all the years and I filled in songs and got the years and, so pretty quick, I could, do, I could do that. And just one day, it just occurred to me. I started doing it on the street. I just said, hey, pick a year. I'll play a hit. Everybody's like, no, no way. I go, yeah. And they start doing it. And it became such it's a, a huh? icebreaker, you know, and just worked great. It was a big hit. And then I found out that um, it was just such a, an extremely good tool for ministry. Um, yeah, I can wait till you start that. You know, what I wanted to be was a Christian Christian artist and a songwriter. But when I would go into these public schools, uh, the guy that would book me in the public schools, the first time he did it, he just goes, okay, you go stand up in front of this classroom of, you know, 30 Dutch teenagers and entertain them with your guitar. And I'm like, Ugh. and I get up and I start singing the Christian song and they're all looking at me. These kids, they think of Jesus like Peter Pan or Santa Claus or something. It's like a mythical figure that nobody really believes. And, and I start singing these songs and, and uh, it just was really, really hard, nervous, incredibly nervous. And these kids sitting right there staring at you. And um, I, I said, I need some kind of icebreaker. I need something that I, I soon realized these kids cannot relate to a song about Jesus especially a worship song, but even songs about faith, they're just like, what the heck? They, they can't even begin to relate. I, need, I said, I need a buffer or something. And so I said, the songs they listen to the radio on the, on the radio, those are the songs they can relate to. That's why they like 
Phil Collins because he's singing some message that they like, or that's why they like Dire Straits at that time. Um, and so I said, what if I found songs on the radio that have a spiritual message of some sort and start with that? So I learned a couple of songs that really had a powerful message and something spiritual. And then I would start, I'd get in front of this classroom of kids or the whole school, oftentimes like five or 600 kids. And I'd start, um, I'd play a couple of these songs that were current on the radio right then that had a message. And I'd say, what do you guys think about that message? You know, do you, do you think we, do we have an emptiness and emptiness inside that needs to be filled? Like that song says, and the kids were like, yeah. And I said, well, that makes me think of a song I wrote myself. And then I could, you know, Mm. go in. So I'd win them over with the song they knew. They're like, oh, we love this guy. He likes the same music we do. And it'd be really good. And then I could transition. By the end, I'm doing a full-on Christian concert, sharing my testimony, um, telling them about the love of God. uh, And and I took them with me the whole way. So that's how I first started using secular music in a ministry context. And then... um, that I started doing that at churches all around the Northwest and around the country um, using that same method, doing the first half hour of the concert, just secular music. And people would bring non-Christian friends into the church. And the, these non-Christians are like, wow, this church thing is kind of cool. They like the same music I do. They're not judgmental about secular music. And and I'd win them over. And then I'm doing a Christian concert and people getting saved and stuff. It was fantastic. But then that's where the pick a year thing came in as well. Pretty quick, I just started doing that at the beginning of the concert. And it was such a great icebreaker that uh, it just worked really well. And then, you know, later on in my career, uh, corporate gigs, I mean, I had companies paying me. I was, I've played for like 3M and Mm -hmm. Ashley Furniture, some of the biggest companies in the world. And they hire me just for that. They want this guy that comes and does pick a year. Last year we paid three grand for a band that just stood there and played songs and they weren't very entertaining. We paid three grand for our company summer barbecue. And that was boring. We can get this guy, you know, we pay him 1600 bucks, which is nothing to them. They like, Oh, that's super cheap. We'll get this guy for 1600 bucks. And he's three times as entertaining as the band with this pick a year thing. So, you know, that has been a really an amazing, it's been, that's the way that God helped me to provide for my family. Is that yeah. stupid pick a year thing? <laughs> And are you still doing that? I did it last night. Yeah. I did it last night at Hungadunga and it went go. and it went great. You know, it surprises people. It's really a kick. The funniest story with that, a profound story with the pick a year thing was uh I uh got asked to open for Jay Leno at a at a university and he uh in front of six thousand people. And the guy at the college that suggested me knew me and booked me, knew I'd do a good job. And, uh, but the promoter, um, didn't know anything about me. And he's like, Oh, this college hired this guy to open for Jay Leno. And man, better be good. And, uh, cause it's a local guy. It must be some, you know, who knows how good he is, you know? And, uh, so the show's about to start 6,000 people there. Jay Leno's standing there. I'm the promoter. I'm, we've got my guitar on. I'm tuned up. I'm literally seconds from going on stage. And, uh, the promoter says, so what songs are you going to do? Because I had 20 minutes to do. What songs are you going to do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and he, he laughs. He goes, I good one. <laughs> no, really, what songs are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. And he goes, where's your set list? And I said, I don't use a set list. And he goes, and he's starting to look like he's panicking. He's getting scared to look on his face. And he's going, 
you, you don't have a set list? You don't know what songs you could do? And I said, no, I'm going to kind of interact with the audience, take requests. And he goes, you can't do that in front of 6,000 people. You can't interact. And I, and I said, and uh, right at that moment, the guy on stage said, Eric E. And I had to go right when the guy said, you can't do that. I said, I said, watch me. And I walked on stage. The guy's had a panic look on his face. He's thinking I'm going to screw up his whole show. And I get up there and I just play one of my originals just to kind of introduce myself and show him, you know, who I am. And, and then I just said that, you know, I said, the funny thing I do now is I say, I say, uh, I used to say, you know, pick a year and I'll play you a song. Now, now I say, uh, tell you what, shout out a year, pick a year, and I will play you a hit song, not necessarily from that year. <laughs> and everybody, everybody's like, Wait, what? They, they, that cracks them up. You know, they think it's funny. I'll tell them my lawyer makes me say that now. But, but uh, no, I, uh, so I got up there and I said, pick a year and I'll play you a hit. And you could have heard a pin drop. The whole crowd's like, what? And I said, yeah, just somebody raise your hand so I can see which, who's talking. Raise your hand and tell me a year and I'll play you a hit song. 6,000 people. So probably 250 people raise their hand. And I just said, I looked at the guy and I said, red ball cap, blue, sh- blue shirt. And everybody else put their hands down and everybody got dead quiet because they wanted to hear what this guy was going to say. And he goes, you know, 1983. And so I right into the tune. And, and then the next, and then the crowd, they all start pretty quick. Everybody's raising their hand and they're into it and they're cheering, they're laughing and we're having a ball. And the promoter guy, he was like, he was like, he's shaking his head. He's going, yeah, this is working. You know? So that was a pretty cool triumph with the pick a year thing. But, um, so how many songs do you have per year? Every year's different. Some years. But a, a number per year. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, there, there might be. A few years that are there might be a couple years where I only have one song, but most song most years, just from 1970 to 1975, just those five years, I have 45 songs. Wow, for five years, and then there's there's a lot of years where I just have two or three. Um, you know, the 80s were tough because it was all synthesizer music, you know. But, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun keeping it up, and it, it just works. It 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 sets me sets me apart, makes it more entertaining than just somebody standing there singing song after song, whatever song they want. Plus it's more fun for me. It's really, it can get boring playing three hours of music all the time in a bar or something. And, and if you pick in your own songs or doing the same set list, a lot of people do the same set list over and over and over. I've done probably over 6,000 shows in my life and I've never once played the same set list twice. Mm. And, And so that's fun. And when I don't know what somebody's going to say, I have no idea. Um, that uh, just keeps it entertaining and fun for me too. And um, so, are you constantly adding new songs? Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. Um, but the coolest thing, the coolest part about the pick a year thing, is when I was doing the Christian concerts, and I, I mean, I still do not as many now as I want to, but um, when I was doing a lot of church concerts, uh, the churches would get people to, because they knew what I did, they would try to get a lot of non-Christians and a lot of neighbors invited to the concert, to the church. And, um, or they would take me and put me in public settings, uh, where there was, where I was going to draw like at a park or something. And they'd do a concert in the park where I would be using the secular music to attract listeners to come over and then go into my Christian songs. And, um, 
the coolest thing was I would have, because of the classroom work that I would do, where I would learn these popular songs that have a message. Like, for example, 1988, Tracy Chapman, Fast Car, is a song about her pinning her hopes on a guy that she knows is not the best guy. But she gives him her everything, pins her hopes on him, and then a decade later she's even worse off than she was when she started because she trusted in her own judgment and trusted in things of the world instead of God, what God would have had her do. And um, I had so many songs where I have a message and I would make these little mini sermons, these little five, 10 minute sermons off the song that I could do. And the coolest part was I would go to these churches and these little places and little towns and, and I, and somebody would shout out 1988 or 1964 or whatever, or, you know, 1999. And I'd have these songs with a message and I would do that. And then that would inspire so I never knew when I did a Christian concert, I didn't even know what I was going to, what message I was going to do. But a lot of times the people would pick these years and it would make a theme come out. And by the end of the night, I was given kind of preaching a little message on a theme that had come up spontaneously that night. And then after the show, the youth director would come up and he'd go, oh, Eric, you have no idea. That is exactly what's going on in our church right now with these families. What you were talking about based on that Tracy Chapman song. That was exactly what these kids needed to hear for tonight. And I and I went, that's God. Because they could have just, well, picked other years and had different songs and different messages and stuff, yeah. but they picked that one. And that happened so often that I realized that's the coolest thing about doing my uh, requests that way is it lets the Holy Spirit do what he wants. Because if I said, oh, here's my original, here's my... Uh, 22 songs I'm going to do tonight in these in this order, and then there's the sheet on the floor, and I just do them. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's going to work through those songs. But if the Holy Spirit gets to pick the songs, <laughs> it's like, wow. Because all he has to do is say, this group needs to hear Eric's message from his 1972 song, so I'm going to have Susie here say 1972. Boom. There it goes. And, and then I find out, oh, man, there was this kid that was suicidal, and that one song tonight made her not decide to commit suicide. I found that out a couple times wow. and you just go that that's the coolest thing about the pick a year deal is the Holy Spirit doing it when I was, you know, doing a ministry concert. And, uh, so are you still having to travel a lot for um, music or, um, or what's the, what's the next chunk of time look like for Eric E? Well, I had to COVID <clears throat> COVID caused me COVID canceled every show I had. Yeah. For a year and a half, two years. I, I literally, one year, all my income was just gone. And uh, so I drove, a tr- I drove a semi, I got my license. I figured, well, I drive around the country doing gigs. I'm an expert at delivering a product to a location, faraway location at a certain time. The product is me and my guitar. I've done it forever. So I might as well become a truck driver. So I tried that, um, got my license. I drove a big semi flatbed, 47 States in a year. Wow. Yeah. Lived in a truck, you know, three, four weeks in a row sometimes. And, um, uh, that, and that, the man, there was cool music things that happened there too. I I got stranded Sundance, Wyoming. I got stranded in a snowstorm for a couple of days. I went into a bar and just started playing in a bar and I made 200 bucks a night in tips. (laughs) <laughs> just playing in a snowstorm in a bar in Sundance. 
played, I drove up in my semi to a country club in Florida, a country club where the, the annual buy-in, the people that live at this community, like a senior community, $2 million buy-in. And uh, just to get to, to be in there, and then you got to buy your place. Um, and I drove up, pulled up in a semi out in front. <laughs> that took my PA system out of the semi, went in, did the show. They got to get out of that. But um, so I was even doing gigs when I was driving my truck. But yeah. but then I, the money just ended up not being worth the amount of time away from home. It just wasn't worth it. So I quit that, and um, I did auto body for six months, still playing once or twice a week. Um. And now I'm um, selling guitar pedals for like world-class guitar pedals that are made here in, in Moscow. Oh, awesome. Joe Harby, harbypedals.com, H-A-R-B-Y pedals.com. Um, so now I'm finding dealers for him around the country. And we've got Bonnie Raitt's guitar player playing them, Hank Williams Jr.'s two guys. Uh, we've got a ton of endorsed artists and people mm-hmm. really loving the pedals. And, that's so I'm awesome. I'm doing that during the daytime now so that I can stay home cuz now the the main pivot in my career I mean it was covid really shifted everything because I can't even now when there's gigs available because of travel expenses the travel expenses went up so much that I can no even if somebody's paying me really well like they want me to pay, they want to pay me 1500 bucks to play for an hour at these country clubs in Florida uh by the time I pay airfare rental car Hotel, food, PA rental, 20% to the agent, 28% to Uncle Sam. You know, it's like three days of work. I'll come home with 40 bucks. (laughs) So, you know, it's just ridiculous. So, unfortunately, COVID has basically killed my traveling for now. Um, And the other thing, and, and that's because I have to, because I'm stuck in Moscow. I absolutely love Moscow, love the hunting, fishing, love everything about it, but there's just no venues to play here. And and the the ones, a lot of the venues are paying the same thing they paid musicians 30 years ago. Um, that's across the nation in many ways. But um, the problem is I got 11 grandkids that are the most important thing in the world to my wife and I. And my three sons, my three wonderful sons and their families are all here. Yeah. So I can't leave. My agent, I've got an agent in Minneapolis and he said, Eric, if you just moved to Minneapolis, it's because it's the largest booking agency in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. He said, you move here, you'll be making six figures in the first year because you won't have the, all the travel expenses. And But I can't. I'm not I'm not moving. So, so you figure out am, how to make it work. Yep, here I am playing for 150 bucks in a bar, you know. Um, so, yeah. I've still got a couple of things. Like, for example, I just uh, – I got booked at Reba McIntyre's club. She's got a restaurant and club. I'm playing there November 9th and 10th at Reba McIntyre's. And I'll be staying at her sister's house for a week because I know I know her sister's husband. And so I'm going to be staying at Reba's sister's house for a week. There you go. So that's kind of cool. I'm going to play her club and another couple clubs. And and uh, that's going to be cool. You know, who knows? Still putting a few things together. Yeah. And playing locally. Yeah. Where do, is, do you play anywhere locally on a regular basis here? The Place, most. Or where where can people find out where you're going to be? And well, the that? simplest thing is just my website, eric-e.com. E-R-I-C-E.com. Um, and my schedule is on there. Uh The place I play probably most regularly in Moscow is Bootsers. I play there every, at least once every couple months. 
And I've got a blues band now that's a blast. We played at the Lake County Fair, uh, kind of a high energy blues band. I'm really getting a kick out of that. Um, and it's so great because it's 10 times the work for a fraction of the money. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I play bootsers. I played Hunga Dunga last night for the first time. They liked it. So they're going to book me some more. Hunga Dunga. Um, I've played the Dirty Goat. Um, there's a there's a few venues in town that won't that won't book me because I go to a church they don't like, and um, that's interesting. But up to the Lord, obviously. And um, let's see, yeah, that's about it locally. I mean, I do private events. I'll do a barbecue for U of I or WSU once in a while, and or weddings or special events where people could see me or, or like something at the fairgrounds or, but so the simplest way is just look at my, uh, yeah. Eric dash E. Eric dash E.com. Yep. Yep. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, but there's, there's just been a, it's been quite a, quite a wild ride. And I'm just, and, but now because of my grandkids, I'm in my sixties now. Um, I'm just keeping it to the Northwest now. Basically I want to keep it to where I can drive. Yeah. I'm going to drive to Oklahoma, but for that, this tiny little pub gig, you know, well, it's Reba's place, so it's bigger than a tiny pub, but it's funny. I'm driving all the way to Oklahoma for that gig, but when Reba calls, you go, you know what I'm there saying? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd rather drive because I can take my PA system and, and yeah. not deal with the hassles of flying because flying now. Well, I can't take a chance that my flight cancels right? and I, and I miss that show. I can't miss it. Yeah. So. That's why I'll be driving to that. But other than that, I'm just trying to keep it now to Spokane, Coeur d'Alene, Moscow, Pullman, Lewiston, Clarkston, and, and uh, just renewing. I've, I've only had contacts all over the country, so I've kind of lost all the local contacts. And so now I'm trying to really pick up, you know, get these bars where I can make a whole hundred bucks or two, you know. That's good. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Appreciate all the stories. Fun to hear it, and yeah, and, uh, like Casper, like we were talking, I'll have to get you back with your guitar at some point. Oh, I'd be That'd glad be to. Yeah, I'd be glad to do that. And uh, sorry, I didn't. I just realized I didn't give you a chance to really ask any questions. I just rambled no, all that's, the time. No, that's the way it goes. It's great. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, fun to hear those stories, and especially all the crazy Europe stuff. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's one thing. Big the, journey. As far as crazy stories on my website, if you go to my website, there's a link. There's a a tab that says weirdest gigs. And one time I wrote down about 30 of them. Oh, awesome. The weirdest things that have actually happened to me. And people think they're so crazy that people think it's, it's a joke or it's not true, but every single one on there is 100% true. It's, and people get it. That's, I get the most response about that on my website than anything else. Nice. So you might want weirdest to check, check gigs weirdest gigs on, on Eric dash E.com. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All right. With that. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Like, share, subscribe. We'll see you next week.